Well, if you would, open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at just, just a few verses. It's verses 14 through 16. It's on page 1003 in your pew Bible. It's printed in your bulletins as well, if you like. <clears throat> I used to think Christians were weak. I no longer do. In my atheistic 20s, I used to look down on religious people. I saw them as weak. They couldn't handle the pressures of life, so they leaned on something called faith, whatever, whatever that was. But I've come to see things differently. Atheists, and for today I will include something we can call functional atheists. What's a functional atheist? A functional atheist is someone who says that God exists, but does not live as if God exists. They say things to me like, Put in a good word to the man upstairs for me. For the atheists and the functional atheists, faith in Christ can appear to be a crutch for the weak. Why is this? Well, if you're an atheist, then life for you is easy. If there is no God, then what? You set your own standards to live by. And when you set your own standards, guess what? They're, they're really never that burdensome, are they? I mean... Just recycle your waste or adopt a rescue pet or be nice to most people most of the time. And then you will be what we call living true to yourself. And being true to yourself is to take the easy road. Why is that? Well, guess what? You are yourself. (laughs) You're off to a good start. And on 9 out of 10 days, you will succeed in being true to yourself. And the other 1 out of 10 days, well, you just... Forgive yourself and move on. Living true to yourself is to take the easy path in life. But, but try living true to God. That's when the road turns steep and winding and, and, and narrow. Our calling from Christ to live a life for Christ and his kingdom and not for ourselves and our own kingdoms is the hard way. It's not the easy way. Jesus said so on the Sermon on the Mount, right? I know most of you are familiar with this. He said what? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's a difficult road, and so we're so easily tempted to turn off the road that Christ calls us to, to find the broad and easy path, and to seek after rest in this troublesome, weary world. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at in this entire book that he writes. See, the original audience of this book of Hebrews, they were in danger of of turning away from Christ in whom they confessed and, and stopping following Christ. See, they were Jewish converts to Christianity who were scattered outside of Jerusalem. They, and the Jewish people back in that day, they were not as persecuted as other people in the Roman Empire. Why? Because Judaism was on the official approved religious lists back in that day. But Christianity? Christianity was not on the approved list. Why? Because Christians had another Lord another king to whom they pledged their allegiance. Christians would not bow to the Caesars, and so they were persecuted violently, thrown to lions, torn in two by beasts. 
And so the writer to these Hebrews was warning them. He's saying, don't go back to the broad road. It looks appealing to go back to the old days, but don't do it. See, if we're honest, we have to admit that we are weak. And the work that Christ calls us into, listen, cannot be done in our own strength. It's hard to take up one's cross and follow after Christ. It's, it's hard not to store up treasure on earth. It's hard to turn the other cheek or to walk the extra mile for one's enemy. It's hard to pursue holiness. And so we can be tempted to go back to the broad and easy road. Now, do you see this tendency in your own life? Well, now let's read Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. Um, may we receive it in faith. May we believe it. May we latch onto it and hold fast to this confession. May we be those who draw near to you. Help us in this hour, in this text, to understand that better. We pray. Amen. Well, this passage helps us to see this big truth that we're going to look at this morning. Christianity is for the weak. But there's a paradox we must understand. When we are weak and draw near to Christ in prayer, he makes us strong. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at it under two headings. First, our confession, and then our confidence. Our confession. Any Lord of the Rings fans here, maybe. In the second Lord of the Rings uh, movie, The Twin Towers, there's a scene in which Frodo is at the end of his rope. He does not have the will to go on, but his faithful companion, Samwise Gamgees, gives a confession of hope that stirs up Frodo, and he latches onto it in order to be able to complete his journey on that narrow road. Here's the dialogue. Frodo, I can't do this, Sam. Sam, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know, you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, a shadow. This darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with with us, with you, that, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back, 
Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam, that there's something good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. There's a hope that Sam confesses. There's a, there's a hope upon which he's holding fast. He, and, and, and holding on to it keeps him from taking a, a U-turn and giving up on their quest. Christians, we have a confession that we lay a hold of, that we hold on to. That's what we read of at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. What is this confession that we're to hold on tightly to? Well, later in chapter 10, verse 23, the writer elaborates. Here's what he says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We share a captivating hope as Christians. We confess it. That is, we profess that there is truth that we um, hold on to. There is truth that exists, that God alone is our creator, that we live in his creation as, as his creatures, and, and his creation has now been marred by sin, and, and we've all have fallen short of this glory, and we're all deserving of God's judgment, but, but God in love and in mercy and in grace gave us his son to live and to die and to rise again for us. And one day, perhaps soon, he will return to usher in this eternal age of perfection and glory. In real simple terms, that is the confession, the the hope that we are to hold fast to. The writer of the Hebrews exhorts us to hold fast to this hope we confess. Hold on to the hope of Christ and his kingdom. Don't be swayed by any other offerings in this world. Don't be captivated by lesser hopes. Yes, the way of Jesus and his kingdom is a narrow and a hard road. It's full of sacrifice. It's full of God refining us in his fire. It's full of trials in which we are tested. And yes, we are weak. And we are, we are prone to turn off the narrow road. So we must hold fast with all our might to our confession. Whatever you do, says the writer, let us... He includes himself in this. Let us hold fast our confession. And the writer states the reason why we are to be able to have confidence to hold fast to our confession. He says that Jesus is there in heaven. He's our reason that our hope is what? Secure and it's trustworthy. When I was in college, I was in ROTC at Indiana University, Army ROTC. And my buddies and I, we used to go rappelling all the time. America's longest train trestle repelled it. Giant rock quarries repelled them. A four-story parking garage with a security guard chasing after you repelled it. (laughs) Wish I had video of that. When you're about ready to lean over a 200-foot cliff, do you not first make sure your rope has a secure and trustworthy anchor? Of course you do. But once you know that your anchor is secure, well, look out below. It's true, isn't it? If your life depends upon holding on to something, what you hold on to must be secure and trustworthy or else you are in danger. And my friends, there is nothing on the broad road that is secure or trustworthy. 
that you can hold on to, that will ever give you what your heart desires from it. They will all fail you, except for Christ and his kingdom. That's the point. This writer wants us to see just how secure and trustworthy our confession is. Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What is he saying to us? What is he saying to us? Christian, your hope is not secured to a myth. Jesus, God's very divine son, has faithfully navigated. Listen, Jesus has navigated the narrow little road when he came to earth. He's done this for us. He did not turn back. He endured the cross, despised its shame. He rose from the dead in victory over our sin. He's alive. And he's gone ahead. He's in glory itself. He is our anchor. He is the reason why our confession is secure and trustworthy. And guess what? When we pray, we are what? We are holding fast to a confession. Consider the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. I think we all know that. It's printed in your bulletin. But think about it. The Lord's Prayer is a holding on to a confession. Our Father who art in heaven. We're saying, God, you're the perfect Father to us. How could we bow to anyone else? Hallowed be thy name. Your name is glorious. You're the ultimate being who is worthy of our love and devotion. All of creation belongs to you. May your name, therefore, be hallowed and revered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you have brought us from death to life. So now we live for you and for your kingdom and your kingdom only. Give us this day our daily bread. We confess our daily dependence upon you, Heavenly Father. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We confess our ongoing sinfulness in need of forgiveness, do we not? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Much of prayer is what? Laying hold of the confession that gives us life and gives us joy. And so as you pray this week, be reminded that prayer involves a holding fast to our confession. And so as you pray, would you do this? Renounce before God any ways in which you have turned towards the broad and easy road. Lay hold of the gospel message afresh. Hold fast to our great confession. That's the confession. Now for the, for the confidence. If you're an astronaut orbiting the moon, and I know this is like far-fetched, but maybe not in 30 years, I don't know. If you're an astronaut in a spaceship orbiting the moon and a life-threatening emergency happened, who would you want back at NASA listening in on the line when you cried out, Houston, we have a problem. Who do you want there? Would you want some from NASA's accounting department? <laughs> or would you want a flight engineer who spent countless hours inside that same space capsule and who knew the systems intimately? Nothing against accountants. <laughs> I minored in accounting. But I think we would all have more confidence in the one who was intimate with our situation. This writer to the 
book of Hebrews wants us to know who is on the other end of the line when we pray. We have Jesus who is intimate with our situation. Why? Because he came to earth and lived and suffered just like you and me. He came in weakness. Why? So that we can become strong. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Old Testament Judaism, the high priest stood as a mediator between God and men and men and God. And once a year, the high priest would first offer a sacrifice for sins for himself to cleanse himself. And then he would offer the spotless lamb as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The high priest would represent the people before God and bring atonement to them. And and he also represented God as he brought God's mercy and his grace to God's people. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that the writer here spends multiple chapters doing what? Takes great pains trying to demonstrate to his readers that the divine son, Jesus Christ, has put an end to the need of any more priests on earth. Christ has served once and for all as our great high priest. And guess what? He was also the sacrifice that was offered up on our behalf. He is the the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And what we read here is that Jesus continues to be our great high priest for us right now in heaven. But what kind of high priest is he? Is Jesus at the right hand of God Almighty looking down on us and thinking, gosh, look at those idiots. I just keep putting up with them over and over and over again. How many times do I have to tell them, gosh, No. Once again, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why is it that when you pray to God, he isn't up there shaking his head in disbelief at you? Because Jesus is there. And he's able to perfectly understand you and sympathize with you. Why? Because he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus completely understands what it's like to be tempted. He knows how hard life is here on earth. He knows how hard it is for us to follow after him on this narrow road. He knows how tempted we are to want to set up our own thrones and kingdoms. Jesus was tempted in every respect like we are yet without sin. Now this is where the skeptics will clear their throats and begin to try to pick apart verse 15, they will say, uh, if Jesus never sinned, then, then how can he really know what temptation is like? Thankfully, someone far wiser than me, C.S. Lewis, uh, addressed this objection. Here's what he wrote. Listen, he said, this is really good, so pay attention. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. 
A man who gives in temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered, easy life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, was also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And he is the one we pray to. Listen, Jesus knows far more than you and I do because he was tempted and he never, ever gave in. In an old sermon, John Piper lists various ways that Jesus was tempted. He was tempted to lie to save his life, tempted to steal to help his poor family, Tempted to covet all the nice things Zacchaeus owned. Tempted to dishonor his parents when they were more strict than others. Tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused. Tempted to lust when Mary wiped his feet with her hair. Tempted to pout with self-pity when his disciples fell asleep in his hour of trial. Tempted to murmur at God when John the Baptist died at the whim of a dancing girl. And tempted to gloat over his accusers when they could not answer his questions. And so the writer here wants us to recognize that that when we pray, we have in heaven one who listens with perfect sympathy towards us. Because Because Jesus is our risen great high priest, when we pray, God in no way rolls his eyes at us. He does not raise his hand and say, oh, not you again. What a comfort this is. But more than a comfort, the writer wants us, wants, is, is saying this. He, the, the writer says that knowing this means we're to have confidence, confidence to draw near in prayer. He is saying, since we have this sympathetic high priest, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. We are to have confidence. Confidence to what? To draw near. Draw near to what? The throne of grace. The phrase throne of grace and the throne of God are synonymous. They're the one in the same thing. The throne of God, listen, is a throne of grace. It is nowhere called a throne of ridicule. It's not called a throne of mockery. It's not the perpetual throne of the rolling eyes of God. It is not the comeback later when you finally get your life straightened out throne. The throne of God is synonymous with the throne of, of grace. They're one and the same thing. Can, can you let that sink in? When you pray to your heavenly father, you're not shouting across a great gulf trying to catch the attention of someone who has little or no concern for you. You're, you're coming to the throne of God, and you must now see it as a throne of grace. And when you draw near to this throne of grace, what is it that you and I receive? Look at verse 16. We receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
we receive mercy and find grace. Instead of judgment, we receive mercy for our sin. Over and over and over again, God never runs out of mercy for his children. Do you believe that? Never runs out of mercy. But not only do we receive mercy, when we draw near in confidence, what else? We, we find grace. Think this through. On the one hand, it kind of seems obvious, like Captain Obvious thing, right? It's like saying, I went to the car dealer and I found what? Guess what? A car. Yeah. I went to the ice cream stand and what did I get? I, I got ice cream. How'd you know? I went to the throne of grace and, and I found grace. On the one hand, it seems so so obvious that you would find grace at the throne of grace. But then again, it isn't, is it? I mean, if we really believed it, I mean, think of how freely we would come before God in prayer if we only had confidence that God wasn't up there rolling his eyes at us, but was rather eager to lavish upon us his mercy and his grace. Oh, that we would sing, listen, that we would sing the words of David that that conclude Psalm 23. What surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And consider this too. Consider how freely we would come before the throne of grace if we only understood that grace is what we need in our time of need. Listen, when we find it's hard to follow after Christ on this narrow road, what is it that we need? Are we in need of a clever TED Talk or an energy bar or a list of rules for for better living? Do we need more income? Do we need more vacation days? Listen, it seems illogical, but when we're in times of need, what we need is what God gives us. And what does he give us? Grace. Grace is what we need. And so here's the paradox of the Christian life. When we follow after Christ, genuinely hungering and thirsting for his kingdom and his righteousness, our lives become harder, not easier. And we come to realize, you know what, I really am weak. You know, a lot of Christians just put on a face, they put on a smile, you know, and they're kind of self-righteous, and, you know. But no, the call of Christ is not self-righteousness. It's to find out that you really are weak. And when, but when, when we come to realize that we are weak, too weak on our own to live the life that God calls us to live, that's exactly where we need to be. See, unless we be weak, we cannot be strong. (laughs) That's the point. Do you remember when Paul, what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Some of you are familiar with it. Paul was struggling with something. He asked God three times, just take this away. You know, this narrow road's hard. Uh, Just get rid of these problems for me. Here's what he wrote. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient 
for you. For listen, my power is made perfect in weakness. What did Jesus say to Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen and embrace this truth. Christian, God's power is made perfect in weakness. In pride, you will not experience his power, but in humility, you will. Listen, God allows hardship in our lives so that we will recognize how weak we really are. So that we will draw near to the throne of grace. So that his power may work perfectly in our lives. And here's what Paul concluded. He goes on to say, listen, therefore what? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. We like to hide our weaknesses. We don't want people to see them, right? Put on a face. No, he boasts of his weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Then he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the paradox of Christianity. When we fully embrace the narrow road, our lives become harder, not easier. And we come to realize how weak we really are. And then in our weakness, we draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And and the Holy Spirit works with us and and gives us power to live God-honoring lives on this narrow and hard road. It's amazing, isn't it? Christian, the life that Jesus calls you to live is a life you cannot live until you recognize you are weak. It's only in embracing your weakness that you become a person of prayer. See, until you're so humbled that you realize how utterly dependent you are upon the grace of God to empower your life, until you completely understand your dependency, you will not be a person of deep, kingdom-centered prayer. But once you recognize the truth concerning how weak you are and always will be until Christ returns, once you recognize that the throne of grace is where the weak become strong, then you will become a walking paradox. When I am weak, I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we do not like to think of ourselves as weak. And we so often just want to travel upon the easy, broad road in the power of our own strength. How foolish we are. But thank you that you're able to sympathize with us. Jesus, you know we are weak. And so you are our perfect high priest. Today, we hold fast to our confession. Today, with confidence, we draw near to your throne of grace. We are weak, but you are strong. We ask for mercy and grace, not to take us off the narrow road, but to have the power to live for you on the narrow road. Amen.